Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Thank you for joining us for another exciting episode in our Biotech Dealmakers podcast series. I'm Yaron Warber, Biotechnology Analyst at Cowan. I'm super excited to be joined today by Paul Biandi in this episode, Thoughts from the Trenches, to discuss his key insights from the trenches on the future direction of business development and M&A in biopharma and fostering a new model for collaborations. Paul joined Flagship Pioneering in 2019 as executive partner and as president of Pioneering Medicines. Paul was involved in strategic and operational aspects of flagship since the beginning, including working with portfolio companies to boost value creation. Previously, Paul served as Senior Vice President of Strategy and Business Development, where he ran BMS's strategy for external innovation. Prior to this role, Paul held a series of leadership roles within the company in R&D, overseeing strategy, portfolio, and project management, and clinical and business operations. Paul, always great to see you, and thank you for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, everyone, for inviting me. You know, there's so much that we can talk about with you, Paul, and I kind of want to bridge the gap in your career, or your, I should say, the lifespan of your career from your illustrious tenure at Bristol and obviously doing business development to what you're doing now at uh, Flagship Pioneering and, and Pioneering Medicines as well. So let me start with an obvious question. What do you think made you successful at uh, BMS and what was the secret sauce to to really stringing along um, and, and building a pipeline to external innovation? Great. Well, thanks, Jaron. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to think back on that era. I really enjoyed, obviously, my, my time at BMS, um, particularly not only on the R&D side when I was there, but the, the BD side. I think that, you know, I'll start there. I think part of it was actually an insight that Charlie Bancroft, who was our CFO at the time, had um, when he approached me to say, hey, Paul, I, you know, I think you'd be a really, I was I was working in R&D and uh, under um, uh, that time, Francis Gus, but I had worked with Elliot Siegel, uh, both the heads of R&D before that. And, you know, he really had the insight to say, hey, this is always about an alignment and an extension of an R&D strategy. And instead, you know, you've got such, because of your role, and the history and all that, you have such a great insight into that, um, into the R&D piece and what we're trying to achieve that, you know, it really would make sense, you know, for you to have come in and run this. He was running at that time directly. Um, and uh, so I, I think that that's the number one thing in my mind, which was a clear, I think at BMS, you know, starting back, you know, even with the String of Pearl strategy, um, when Jeremy had come in, Jeremy Levin, uh, who obviously you know well, and uh, he had worked on that strategy with Elliot um, that was part of R&D, right? He reported into Elliot and part of the R&D organization at that time. Later on, he moved BD up to uh, reporting to the CEO. But, um, uh, you know, it always started with a very tight alignment. And I think Elliot's earliest insight saying, hey, we should always have an internal and external strategy, which seems somewhat obvious now, but it was at the time, um, not everybody was doing that um, because there was so much innovation exploding on the outside, but, you know, and you could complement that with the inside. So the first piece was, I think, just having that clarity and alignment internally, what is the role of BD? Like, what are we trying to achieve? Even at the most macro level, like we saw ourselves as, as, as an extension of our innovation strategy. 
um, in a complementary way to work with R&D. And I think that that was one of it. You know, anybody, I think that does BD, and I'm sure in some of your other podcasts, like it's so much harder to get internal alignment to get these things done than it is to strike a deal externally. Um, you know, that is the that is the fundamental key to this job. And uh, to get deals done is how to get the internal alignment to do them because there's such a plethora of choices. Um, so I think having, you know, the relationships I had, the history of the strategy, um, and, you know, both on the R&Z side, but into the corporate side as well, that that was key. And the last piece I would say for me was the ability to really build just uh, just a terrific team that just exquisitely fit that strategy, you know, um, and I was lucky in some of the people that were there, folks like Graham Brazier, for example, and, uh, um, and others that uh, were just um, had a depth of experience in um, Donna McGrath, others uh, um, that had done this. And um, and the ability to for us to to basically, I think, be very integrated with the R and D and commercial side, and to bring that along. Yeah, so that's so that's that's critical. So you're already starting by mentioning what made the strategy successful, and that's the alignment. How how did that work? Was there a mapping of external assets and programs that you were interested in, you know, between you and, and obviously R&D. And then what happened on the R&D side? Did they have a list of what they're doing internal versus external? And how does objectivity run when you're looking at programs which are essentially competitive with what you're developing internally, but might actually better externally? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it happened kind of in two ways. I, I think the kind of more standard way was what we would have is joint teams, strategy teams, disease strategy teams. So we did it by disease area. And, you know, essentially what was brought up, that was a multifunctional team that was usually, you know, obviously led by the R&D side, both research and development, and then typically um, somebody from the, the global commercial team uh, as the kind of core piece. And then BD was the fourth kind of component to that. And so um, it would start with the internal teams, you know, kind of view of where they wanted to go with unmet need and typically kind of like, what is the biology, right, that that they were excited about and, and, and how can we get at that? And it would be, okay, here's, here's our shots and goal internally to, to get at that. Um, and then there was, you know, a discussion of like, Hey, we would love to get at this. We don't, you know, at that time, you know, we had obviously robust small molecule capability of BMS and, and had built out an antibody capability, but, you know, beyond that, there really wasn't any other modalities until we did cell gene, you know, for the most part, it was also thinking about, Hey, these are certain biologies we can't get at doing it internally, or we want multiple shots on goal at it. And that was kind of a key piece. So I think that that was a very well process and it really helped the the, the BD side. The, the one extra piece that I think that that over time was clear to me was we would often see things, right, just through our interactions as I went out and met with various, you know, VC teams or various companies. And you start to see, I would say, often themes of innovation coming out that our team wasn't thinking about. So we would often bring that back saying, hey, guys, we're, we're seeing a lot of activity in this space. It seems like in our search and evaluation people, again, we're very attuned to Hey, this might not be something we're thinking about directly, but we would often introduce ideas to say, hey, we think this fits well. And that's where it is key for like your team, the BD team really didn't know what that internal, um, you know, strategy is. So you can suggest those kind of things versus just saying, hey, here's some opportunistic thing. I think we could get this deal done and try and, you know, I, I hear about these type of approaches and I think that that's just never, never a good idea. Right. You, you want to marry who you want to marry and not what, not who you can. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the best deals we always did where we had a lot of conviction around the biology already, and then somebody just had a better mousetrap. You know, I think that those often worked uh, the best in terms of, again, getting to that internal alignment and our excitement about doing these things. Yeah. So what, what separates, as you think, historically successful transactions from those that didn't really work out? Yeah, I mean, some of it is there. I think it's some of it is having the, con, you know, to me, it's always having that conviction around typically the underlying biology of the program itself, right? That, you know, where, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, just like in normal, you know, drug development, you know, not just because you have that conviction doesn't mean it always works out, right? But but I think that that to me was was always the key to those versus, like I said, sometimes it was sort of like, ah, well, you know, somebody's running a process. We, we think oh, we probably should. We're worried. You know, we we did it more from a, I would say, a defensive perspective versus sort of like a strong conviction of just independently. Hey, we want to have this thing versus, hey, let's protect this other thing. That understanding of like that, this really fits well into our strategy and is why we want to do it. I, you know, the other thing I would say, which is where you know, you built up multiple things, right, uh, against a particular, you know, therapeutic strategy. It, you know, it's just like in all things, it's very hard to predict which one of these are going to work. And you don't want to, I think, be overly, you know, feeling like, hey, the deal, you know, we have to, we have to make this work because look how much we paid for it. I think that that's, you never want to kind of get into that, you know, that cycle of having that, you know, dictate sort of what you're doing. Sometimes I think the only other thing, which was, uh, I don't want to put this the wrong way, where, where you feel like you're in a particular leverage point, right? And you almost be too greedy and how you set it up, like too much control, too much final decision-making, you know, sometimes in the partnerships that we did, you know, I found that actually that just, it's like going into a marriage where you just sort of dictate all the, the rights, you know, eventually the other party just gets disinterested. Right. So I, I think right. sometimes it's not good. It, it feels like you can drive a good, you know, a hard bargain and you feel good about it, but it's not good for the long term. So that was one thing that I noticed over time that, that, you know, a lot of times while painful and difficult, sometimes the joint decision-making on things, for example, was, was a way better approach or not trying to get every last dollar, you know, because it just creates, you know, such a bad taste in the, the other side's mouth, but they feel like they have to kind of take it. it it's got to be a win-win for both parties for it to really be sustainable. Yeah, particularly on the partnership side. I mean, it, you know, that's what in some ways, you know, it can be easier to just do, you know, the M&A side of things, actually. I mean, other than the kind of the risk profile and all the putting up with the dollar amounts, but you know, it's so much simpler from, you know, partnerships, you know, I was always amazed when I really got in and looked at these partnership contracts, you know, they'd be, you know, 200 pages long and versus a very, as you know, very simple M&A contract. Right. It's a question of, yeah, it's, it's a marriage contract versus, you know, a rental, a rental contract. What, what's a good deal for big pharma? How, how do you measure success? Do all deals have to be NPV positive or it's not considered to be a good deal? And what happens in situations where, as to your point, you're diversifying into a new area, you need to bring in new capabilities, and those are they don't often come with a you know ten billion dollar product guaranteed at the end of it. Right. Yeah. I I mean to me, I I think you have to think about it at kind of different stages. You know, when you're looking at, I think a late stage deal that probably fits very clearly into like a known market or like a franchise that you have you know, their NPVs really do matter. And, you know, and I think you have a good ability to actually try to estimate those within a range. You know, I think the key to me, which is like, hey, that the, the potential upside, right, is in a 
and is a much greater ratio to the downside. And I think that that's to me always the way the way to look at it. And in your view of the upside, you know, in your hands, often, and this is why I think people look at some deals that get done by companies and just don't get it. They're like, why would they pay that much for that? Well, because you look at it in your hands and say, we think it could be worth this much from an upside perspective. That honestly, the company alone maybe not wouldn't be able to unlock that value. And and it's not to say, hey, you shouldn't take risk or downside. You know, I mean, it's sort of you know we always used to joke, which is like. You know, for all the ones that, you know, it's that uh, that fail, it always feels like a bad deal, right? And you know, for the ones that succeed, it looks like a good deal, but that's really not the way to think about it. So I think that that's one key piece, which is a, a good deal is where you're preserving, I think, a, a big chunk of, of the upside and that you can create a lot of that upside and doing that kind of retained values piece of it. I think in the earlier space, it's really different. You know, I, I think you it's almost impossible to sit there and forecast what these things are. I mean, we, you just see this time and time again, which is you, in my experience, you introduce a new therapy, right? A dramatic therapy into a space that it really hasn't had one. You see this all the time, right? You know, I remember way back in the day, right? And you see this all the time, right? You know, I remember way back in the day, people thought RA was this big people, you know, even recently with atopic dermatitis, like, you know, because the therapies there, that are introduced are not good, you know, and it's been that way for a while. Yeah, of course, the category, you know, sales is so small because no one's ever introduced to something that's been transformational. You really have to rely on sort of the scientific medical view that like, hey, if if this profile really fits out, this will just, you know, dramatically unmask, you know, kind of demand there. And I think that that's, you know, the right way to think about those deals in the early space. Now, you know, it, it's hard. You have to be you know, you had to have to put some parameters on like, how do you determine the value? But, but I do think it's probably there, you know, again, it's back to that conviction piece of like, hey, you know, have focus and conviction in a few areas that, that you know, really matter to you. And, you know, it, it makes sense to go make those deals happen then. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that, that, that's, that, that's a, it's great to, to hear you say that because I think a lot of times there is a false precision. And yes. To, to what what's analyzable, what you can predict, and where, where's the role of taking calculated risks in a way that's not going to be linear, not everything is going to work, and there needs to be a, you know, a, a culture, both internally and frankly, equally, if not more importantly, externally, that, that risk-taking is okay, not everything's going to work. Yeah. And eventually, over time, you will deliver value, and the totality of the deal is going to create is where you're going to create value. It's not each individual deal on its own. My question then has to do with how much pressure is there to do late stage deals, which are considered to be less risky, less likely to blow up, let's say clinically, more likely to get approved, but perhaps less likely to meet their 14D9 projections, depending how, <laughs> which which way breaks out. And it's almost like, you know, when you're holding on to a sinking ship, but you're going to hold on to that ship, even though you know so you're going to hold on to that, those predictions, even though you know those predictions might be a little stretched versus going earlier stage. There's no ship to even hold on to at that point, but you'll really book all the upside at that point. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And there is a tremendous amount of pressure, right? I mean, just because of exclusivity losses, right, that just create you know challenge to the, you know, that kind of top line trajectory of the company. And, you know, how do you maintain that? Because, you know, it's such a it's, it's, you know, uh, not a deterministic process, right? And from your internal engine, you know, and that, and I do think, you know, part of BD is there to help smooth that out, which is a certain things you're going to work, but they're not going to always, you know, in a particular franchise, right? You know, if you have a large cardiovascular franchise, like, you know, take BMS today with the Eloquist, you know, you know, it's, it's hard. And in part of it is, you know, Hey, I can't completely replace all that, but at least having enough there to say, Hey, could I smooth that out so that when we kind of rebaseline there, you know, we can 
you know, we can come back to it um, and and rebuild in that area and take advantage of the expertise, right? That you that you you know both commercially, medically, and and late stage development on that. Um, so there is it, the challenge. Really, is just yeah, it's back to the retained value now. Like, you know, yeah. you, you just pay all the value out and to somebody, and uh, and and that's you know being really disciplined to say yeah, this would be great, but we're we're not going to retain that. I, I I think the key though is back to what I said earlier that because you have those synergies, right? That other people maybe can't understand and see like your willingness to pay because you see how much greater it could be, you know, I think is, is a key piece to what could allow those late stage deals to happen, but it really has to have a lot. You just have to be, you know, I think really disciplined about that process. I think it's early, you know, in the early space. Yeah. It's, it's a much better way to, to play, right. To do that. I mean, I was always Super impressed with how Celgene had taken their strategy. I, I mean, I still to this day think that that between Tom and George, and then later, um, you know, kind of Rob and others, Rob Hershberg and others, that how they developed that, and then the you know the productivity they got from that. I mean, they had several approved products out of that strategy, right? With a very tiny research organization. Yeah. So you know, I think the 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 kind of playing the portfolio, the multiple shots and options. Mm-hmm. Uh, is what you want. It, the, the challenge is just how to manage that from a R&D perspective. And th- that's where I think we thought a lot about that, which is just, hey, how how can you manage that? And, and maybe this is something we can talk about a little bit too, which is, I think that what I would see the challenge today is like, how do you play all these different new modalities? Um, because that's the, it seems like the existential challenge for the R&D groups today, which is like, gosh, there's so many validated modalities out there today, you know, versus even when I was at BMS, we just had, you know, two, and then, yeah. you know, it's growing to like maybe five and, uh, you know, now it's probably, you know, 10, you know, so it's, it's hard to kind of say, how are you going to try to play that and manage that from just a, just, Hey, how do you, and not only an R and D perspective, but a manufacturing perspective. Yeah. You know, what, what you mentioned and eloquence, you know, it was reminds me of, of the, the Incredibles, right? Where Bob, the, the dad was talking to Dash from the, from the audience, you know, when they were racing and he's telling Dash to go in the front, then go to the back. And he's like, just be second. It's like, you don't want to have that mountain leading Everest, you know, huge position with a big cliff. But of course, that's, that's what happens with innovation. You're successful. You can never engineer it to be a smaller mountain range that kind of grows forever. But, you know, so to, to your point, you know, as you think about multiple modalities, multiple, you know, different programs, um, different pathways in areas, how do you manage it all from, a, from an R&D perspective? And then orchestrating also, you know, how much you're going to spend internally and having the external bandwidth, right? The internal bandwidth to bring external programs. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a key part of it. And actually, that last bit that you brought up, I, I think, is one of the critical things that I probably should have mentioned earlier, which is just... You know, for all pharma companies who are obviously rich with cash, <laughs> you know, but they, you know, the classic, hey, um, PL poor, there, there's a lot of truth to that, particularly in the research space, because, you know, they've got, you know, essentially, you know, in the short term, a lot of fixed costs, right? They've got a lot of, you know, fixed infrastructure, fixed people. Yes, you can adjust it over time, but, you know, their discretionary spend in any, any one year is actually is, is, is not that great because, you know, so much gets pulled into, Having to fund incremental, you know, you know, clinical trials, right on on things that look like they're going to be successful, um, you know, yeah. in the stage development. So, you know, managing and that the internal and the internal commercial products too. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. And I, you know, people don't even look at that because a lot of times that quote unquote phase four spend doesn't even get categorized, right? Yeah. In the <laughs> so, 
It's always yeah. zero on some of the parts for Wall Street. Yeah. It's still zero I, though in reality. And I and I think when I was at BMS, particularly Elliot and Francis, you know, working with you know Lombardo and Giovanni and in the in the whole leadership team and Charlie as the CFO, like really disciplined about saying, hey, we have to preserve a way to make sure that we can budget for these things. Um, because you, what you don't want to get in is that situation where the the, the internal R and D team feels like, oh, this if I take this in, right, I'm going to trade it off for something else, you know, and that's not the position you want to be in because that'll just lead to kind of, you know, killing external innovation to just to preserve internal projects. So, you know, there has to be some trade off there, but you have to keep it in a way that the teams themselves don't don't self select for that. The key piece on the modality thing, I think, is to try to play. Right now, you just you play multiple options around the biology that you're interested in. And, you know, people are, I think, are smart and starting to see, okay, you know, wait until a certain time until you think that these modalities really from a true scaling perspective have been kind of sorted out. And I, th I think there's a greater willingness, you know, and I, I see it in the flagship companies. We, we, you know, we spent a lot of time and thought about investing in how to create very robust manufacturing approaches for these novel modalities, which is you know, often the bulk of what we're innovating on, because we see that as, as almost as fundamental as the core R&D strategy, right? You know, that, you know, is a, is a source of even, you know, huge competitive advantage to get that right. So part of it is then co-opting the manufacturing group to be in on, okay, we've got to get more comfortable and being externalized on some of these assets. And, you know, if it ultimately becomes a huge drug and, it, you know, and is, is great, you know, you're, you know, you'll do what it takes, right? And you'll have the wherewithal to to invest, you know, alongside the company to make sure it's there. But I, I think the the willingness to kind of, hey, just don't assume that the biotech couldn't deliver, um, you know, I think uh, is it, just how you have to play it. Because I think the opportunity cost of not playing in these spaces, you know, just look at all the vaccine players at mRNA, right? You know, it's just, it, that's, you know, you just, you, you can't cover everything, but I think that there are things to say, boy, you know, you should be, you know, at least those have a conviction about some of these things and figure out a way to be involved in them. Yeah. So as you think, you know, in hindsight and, you know, given what the, the way things have transpired, what are the key learnings from the Celgene acquisition for you? I, I'm glad to see now, you know, that I think there's more, you know, recognition and the value, you know, of the company for what that's brought to them. I mean, I think we, you know, it was, it was a big decision, right? And I think, you know, it was really doing the strategic work to really look at sort of like, hey, we're looking at our trajectory and, you know, the potential risks of doing, you know, just on our own where, you know, there were a lot of people that thought, hey, you guys are on a good trajectory. And I think we looked at it and said, yeah, we could. <laughs> and that could be one scenario, but there are other scenarios that maybe we're more, you know, worried about. And, you know, should we not start to both expand out from the modality perspective and, and get into areas? I mean, what was so amazing, I think, about that deal is just, from the get-go, it just it had such an obvious complementarity to the strategy, mm -hmm. and and I think that that's key, right? Because it was just so easy to look and find ways in which it was going to create value for us. You know, not that it didn't have risk, but it also, you know, wasn't like it was all dependent on one product, right? You know, and how it's going to work. So I, I think that that ultimately is the key. Looking back, I think trying to think about, hey, you know, in in the stories just being played now of like. Hey, how do you use that as an opportunity to, you know, reshape the company? And I think that that Giovanni and the and the current team have done a nice job in sort of using this as a catalyst to say, hey, we've got to pivot and move in a different direction. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, um, that you know was a key going into it. You know, part of it. You know, I mean, it, it, it's hard to do these big transactions, and it just takes a tremendous amount of courage. You know, um, 
to do it. Um, and that alignment just and the fortitude internally, like, hey, no, we we know this is the right thing. We're aligned with the board that that, that is it. And so that, you know, in the face of what turned out to be in the beginning, I think a lot of, you know, concern um, from various shareholders about it, um, yeah. you know, you just, you got to have the conviction to say, this is why we think it's the right thing and just, you know, keep going at it. I mean, it's interesting. I've, I've enjoyed working with Nubar Afyanan, the flagship and just his philosophy around having a long-term perspective in iterating mm -hmm. what he did with Moderna, what they do with all the companies, which is, you know, and I think that that, that is one of my takeaways from this as well, which is like, you know, you can see the fundamental aspects of it. It might not, you know, work out right away, you know, but you, there's so, there was so much substrate there to, to say, Hey, there's sort there's so many sources of value that if one thing doesn't quite work out, you know, you have other places that you can pivot to both short-term and long-term. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's the only way to do that kind of deal, honestly. Yeah. You know, even even with that in mind and just everything that you've done in your career, how would the the, the partnering collaboration um, model, how will that change in the next five to 10 years? I mean, right now, I think just given where, you know, the market values are, right, there's probably a lot to justify while, you know, going in and, you know, acquiring something, if you can figure out a way to manage the risk of it. Um, you know, could make some sense. And I can see why people would go down that strategy. I mean, I, I I do believe, particularly in this in this era of like you have this explosion of modalities, you know, that partnering with multiple companies and multiple approaches, again, not all over the place with no coherence, but in a few areas in which you feel really strongly. And that could be like around a target or a set of, you know, a set of areas that you want to go after. I think, you know, is going to vote itself to to want to do these you know, want to do the partnerships, the, the format of those, I think will probably, you know, increasingly around kind of platforms. I think it makes sense to sort of say, hey, you know, let's think about how this platform really could transform a number of areas and, and making the investment to know that and go after it. So I could see that happening. Wanting to to think more about kind of how the how the manufacturing strategy of the your overall company needs to evolve. You know, for a while there was two modalities, and it just evolved into a cost minimization because, you know, these, these were tried and true and they, they did, you know, you could actually just optimize them and, and bring the cost down to now you have to think about, okay, how can I have a network strategy, you know, with multiple players that, you know, what is it that manufacturing team is going to do uh, to be able to, to allow for a greater innovation approach. And so I think that how people partner on that will, will be one of the things that, you know, also comes forward, you know, and, and then some of these things, the nature of the modalities really changes, you know, changes the game, you know, for example, you know, just in the whole gene editing space, right. You know, the, the, the value of non-human primate data, right. Is, yeah. is actually quite predictive. Right. And like, you know, reminds me of like virology where like, gosh, you had these great, you know, abilities to know that the drug worked very early on. You just had to figure out if you can kind of do it safely and deliver it in the right way. And so, you know, I, I also think looking out for, modalities that are going to change the nature of drug development and the paradigm, you know, is, is another piece. And then structuring deals differently because of that. Mm, okay. And are technological deals, they're mostly going to be collaborations. Are they going to be sort of disease or asset-based or are they going to be acquisitions? Well, I, that, that's a great question. I mean, I would see where, you know, people would start down the path more of either kind of the, you know, classic, Hey, let's, let's do, you know, let's do a couple targets on this platform and, you know, because I th think through that process, you know, both sides actually learn a lot, right? This, this smaller platform company gets to know and, and uh, 
you know, more of the expertise and the thought process around kind of the drug development side of the, and the biology that probably the larger company is bringing and, and vice versa, like, you know, the companies, as they get closer to it, realize the real potential of what, hey, this platform can do, which is hard to, to just know purely from diligence. Um, so I, I do think that that, you know, is a, is a piece that will benefit both sides as they get, get to do those and doing those kind of multi-target deals. You know, one of the things that we're doing uh, is, and this is one of the efforts that I'm leading, is, is trying to make it easier for larger companies to actually go earlier and interact with our technologies. And, mm -hmm. and it's because of the way the flagship structures us. You know, we we do our own IP. We we have a large ownership position in our companies um, and take a long perspective. As So as part of that, what we can do is have um, an ability to offer access to multiple technologies as one, rather than just, hey, you have to have as much as we would love to have people have conviction, right? On one, one of our platform companies, we recognize that won't always happen. So allowing people to get some exposure to it, some of that benefit. And what we established is a unit that I built, which is really kind of world-class, you know, pharma drug product thinking folks that can more or less interface with the pharma company and also help our companies in operating in a, in a uh, partnership that way. So I, I think that that's going to bear a lot of fruit. I think that everybody's trying to figure out an answer for, hey, I want, I don't want to be left out of some technology, but I can't possibly cover everything. But trying to come up with structures like this, we think will allow people to, to you know, be, be willing to take more risk essentially and get the upside of more exposure to what these technologies can offer. Yeah. So you started touching on this a little bit, but how, what are you doing differently when you're doing partnering at Flagship Pioneering and at uh, Pioneering Medicines? And then also maybe tell us a little bit about what is Pioneering Medicines, which you're running. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think the key thing, we think of it in these kind of three buckets, right? There's a the classic sort of asset-based partnering. And, you know, that's where one of our companies, you know, independently comes up with what they think is an interesting asset and kind of progresses it. And I think that those are, you know, will always be there and are very kind of traditional in the approach. You know, there's, I think, some movement along sort of people getting more comfortable with, you know, hey, how do you deal with, you know, sharing commercialization rights and things that are important to smaller companies. And I think the big pharma companies have actually done a nice job in sort of accommodating that in a, in a way that's, you know, realistic and feasible uh, to do and um, to, that works for both sides. Uh, you know, I think on our side around the, the, the platform pieces, I think we are, you know, increasingly trying to help people understand kind of, you know, that, there's a lot of promise and potential in these that the as the companies come in earlier, right? They have an ability to shape and make happen in the diseases that they want. And that can be, you know, really, you know, quite, you know, value added to the to the company. And, you know, I think we're seeing how people are more comfortable with that over time. Um, you know, I just take, for example, like a company like Foghorn in our network, you know, I think that they did an, a nice job. They did kind of a smaller deal, I think, with with Merck that had a real interest in a particular, you know, target. They kind of started there. I think that helped others see like get comfort with it. They made some progress on their later assets and then did a larger deal with Lilly, you know, for kind of a mid-tier set of assets. So I, I think that that in their portfolio. And I think that that, you know, kind of piece is such a win-win for both sides of people to kind of see and help shape how that, you know, uh, platform gets developed, um, get access to, you know, real assets and uh, and very helpful to the company. The last piece, yeah, did pioneering medicine. So this was, you know, what we built. This is not a separate company. This is a is this is a capability within flagship itself. And our and our core strategy is to say, hey, that we have these broad-based platform that we develop, and you know, they could be applied in multiple areas. 
when we form the companies themselves, you know, they have to have a focus. Uh, and often we, you know, focus on a lot of diseases where we can get to patients, you know, quickly because that helps drive validation to the platform itself. You know, oncology, rare disease are often areas that focus on, but, you know, we don't need to be confined to this, these, you know, small specialty diseases. So one of the insights that, that Nubar and the other partners had was like, hey, what if we, you know, they, they originally used to come to me and others, you know, other large pharma companies saying, well, why don't you guys want to do that? And of course, our, you know, risk aversion and reticence to jump in on a, you know, novel new platform, you know, we recognize that there's, you know, it's hard to, you know, necessarily get everybody there. So, you know, the thought was, well, what if we established our own unit to basically do like kind of a parallel effort? Um, people that have world-class, you know, drug ex development and discovery expertise that where we could conceive, we sort of take a disease and think agnostically about all the technologies in our portfolio and say, hey, you know, here's a real medical need that's been there for a long time, very or a very interesting target that no one's been able to get at. You know, I think our one of our technologies could uniquely unlock that. So we conceive of these new medicine products. And then what we do is develop individual asset companies. So subs, you know, similar, if you're familiar with like the Nimbus model, or even to some mm -hmm. extent, I think Bridge Bio has done. But in this case, we're just doing it within our technologies and applying these concepts. So that it's not an operating company. Each of these subs is really just an ability for us to, you know, both fund that entity and ultimately transact on it. So we'll, my team as the operating unit within flagship will advance these working with our platform companies, um, trying to lower the opportunity cost and make it as easy as possible for to do an incremental program. But, you know, they'll get the benefit of showing that the platform works in, a, in an entirely new area and without having to make all the investments into that new area, because my team can do that. So I think that that, you know, we're just starting this out, but it's, it's, you know, really starting to get some traction. And then, you know, the other piece that we do think it'll be an enabler for a new type of you know, strategic partnership with pharma, as I mentioned, to give access to multiple technologies. And 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 you need to sign sort of a uh, a separate collaboration with each company as you license technology, and it's a traditional and your traditional you know vertical unit that's yeah, essentially exactly. its own public entity down the line. Yeah, so we yeah so we create these kind of you know um, we create these subs, and you know within that have a formal relationship between us and the and mm. the companies because because ultimately what will happen, which is. I think the goal is to say, hey, we want to get this into the hands of a late stage development and commercialization partner, you know, so that's how um, to bring it to human proof of concept. So ultimately what will remain will be the relationship with the pharma company, hopefully that we, you know, um, do a partnership or sale to and, uh, you know, with uh, on that particular and it's a, you know, a narrow defined asset, right? It's a single program. It's a targeted modality, right? A, you know, PD-1 antibody type of thing. I mean, obviously yeah. not <laughs> just yeah. To make the point, but um, you know, but it'll be in a much more novel area, like uh, you know, a novel target against um, you know, maybe you know, Laurent's uh, circular RNA as an example. Yeah. Uh, that, but then that that relationship will exist long term between the platform company and the pharma company. Yeah, so it's a win-win pretty much for everybody, as you yeah. said. Well, terrific, Paul. Let's let's move to the lightning round, my favorite part of these podcasts, and it's a little a personal touch and has to do. Uh, getting to know the person a little bit more and, and a little touch of humor too. What is your favorite TV show? <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, one of my favorite shows of all time is uh, Star Trek. And, uh, you know, and this is what you love about the streaming era, right? That you can kind of get access to these things. But, uh, you know, partly because it just, uh, my dad, actually my dad was a physician and, but loved science fiction. And uh, I think at the time, you know, really just saw just all the, 
you know, not only the kind of fun human drama of that show, but just in, in how forward thinking it was, but just sort of the the classic kind of allegory and metaphors that was trying to make. I just have such fond memories of like trying to understand, you know, because when you're, you know, when I was younger, I didn't uh, and follow the you plot. Know, yeah, you didn't really understand kind of the the the, the higher, you know, kind of uh, um, allegory that was going on there. And he would explain that to me. So um, I've always had a, you know, a soft spot for that and, and love to kind of, you know, and, and they're so funny and campy, right? But yet the themes are you know, still highly relevant, which is, I think, kind of amazing today. Yeah, I, I was actually just reading recently a book about Einstein and he got to how we founded cosm you know, cosmopology, essentially, and, and the, the four dimensional universe. And I remember just following this and, and, you know, for the first day I could explain all of it. And then a week later, my wife asked me a few questions. I couldn't explain any of it. <laughs> so I, I totally know what you mean. What's your favorite place to go to, to travel to? Yeah, so I, I love to sail. And every year I sail from uh, New Jersey where I, I keep my sailboat. Um, usually I go with my sons and another friend and uh, we sail up to Martha's Vineyard. Um, so that oh. stretch of the East Coast to me is just one of my favorite things to do. And uh, just because you go through and you go through New York Harbor up the East River, the unique view of the city from that point and, you know, fun to take advantage of the currents there. Yeah. And, you know, you open up into Long Island Sound where you can just hit every year we can hit a different harbor, right? Either on the north side of Long Island or on the Connecticut side. And then, you know, typically we'll go to like a Newport and then Block Island, uh -huh. the vineyard. And it's such a beautiful kind of unique, you know, I think stretch of, of sailing. And, you know, so anyway, that's my all time favorite thing to do. I'm sure with lots of IPA and, uh, and lobster and seafood. Yes, exactly. Like you could just pull into these little harbors, like in No Ink and, you know, they've got these, you know, just little lobster shacks and, you know, and every, every night is a fun adventure to kind of find, okay, what are we going to, what are we going to do for dinner? What's the interesting local, you know, kind of, uh, you know, eatery that we can find there. Yeah. So. I, I went to med school up in, in Massachusetts and we did a couple, a few of our rotations up in Maine where back in those days, a couple of lobsters was like really not much. And uh, even being totally broke med students, you can indulge. And then of course, if you go back to Boston, you're like, how much is a lobster? Yeah. No, no I, way I can afford this. <laughs> we had family up in Nova Scotia when I was a kid and we used to go up there and yeah, you would just go down to these, you know, like lobster places where they just, you know, truly, you know, just bringing them right in off the boat. And yeah, it was like a buck or two, a lobster. And they would just yeah. They had these massive pots that sat on four burners. I just drop it in and just give it to you. And, you know, you can still do that. Like at the vineyard in those places, they, you know, you still do that kind of thing. Of course, you're paying not, not a dollar lobster yeah. for fortune. <laughs> With inflation. Um, great, Paul. Always great to see you. This was really wonderful. Really appreciate your time. Uh, th thanks, Your Honor. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.